Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 324. Two big Bible questions of the day. Why is Christianity so focused on blood? Part two. And should we plead the blood of Jesus over things and people? Well, happy Lord's Day, friends. I want to invite you to join us online today at 11 a.m. at our VBC Salinas Facebook page. That's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, VBC Salinas, as our church family launches into a new series on the parables of Jesus. One of our big questions to consider Sunday will be, what does the parable of the sower teach us about evangelism, and how does the parable of the sower encourage those of us who are reluctant evangelists? Well, on the show today, our Bible readings include First Chronicles 5 and 6, yeah, more butchered Hebrew names, I'm sorry, Psalm 148, 149, and 150, Amos chapter 4, and Hebrews chapter 10. That is a total of seven chapters read, which I am very certain sets the new all-time record for Bible chapters read in a day, right? Right? Well, maybe not. We are continuing our discussion from yesterday about blood and Christianity. Christians sing, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Have you ever considered how that song might sound to an outsider? It's a strange song, in a sense, and really quite strange that the blood of Jesus is so central to our faith. Now, I don't mean to use the word strange in a denigrating way either, but it's helpful for us to remember that this is a potentially shocking tenet of our faith to an increasingly secular world, so I'm not saying at all we should minimize it. Rather, I'm saying just the opposite— we should be able to think through the importance of the blood of Jesus in a biblical sense, and given our great commission to take the good news and teachings of Jesus to a lost and dying world, we should be able to explain to skeptics, seekers, and the curious why the blood of Jesus is such a big deal, why it's so important. Well, just consider Hebrews 10 today, our focus chapter. Three times blood is mentioned in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 19 Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, and then verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Well, let's go read the chapter, and then we are going to continue our discussion of the importance of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices that they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in this, in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, You did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, See, I have come to do your will. 
He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were companions of those who were treated that way, for you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So the central importance of both uh, of blood, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is illustrated by the fact that the phrase, quote, the blood, appears over 125 times in most major translations of the Bible, and the word blood itself appears nearly 400 times. Now, when we look for blood in the Bible, what the Bible teaches about the blood, we see things like Revelation 12.11, which says, They conquered him, the Antichrist, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. We also see the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. We see the blood of lambs spread over the doorposts of the homes of the Hebrews, causing God to spare them way back in Exodus 12, 23, when the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel in the two doorposts, 
he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your house to strike you. And finally, we see the blood of Jesus like sort of drawing together and drawing near a whole new people to himself that were formerly far off in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is a, is a big, huge deal. Here's Spurgeon to further bring that truth home to us. Spurgeon writes, Standing at the foot of the cross, we see the hands and feet and side all pouring out crimson streams of precious blood. It is precious because of its redeeming and atoning efficacy. By it, the sins of Christ's people are atoned for, paid for. They are redeemed from under the law. They are reconciled to God, made one with him. Christ's blood is also precious in its cleansing power. It cleanses us from all sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Through the blood of Jesus, there is not a spot left upon any believer. No wrinkle nor any such thing remains. O precious blood which makes us clean, removing the stains of abundant iniquity and permitting us to stand accepted in the beloved, notwithstanding the many ways in which we have rebelled against our God. The blood of Christ is likewise precious in its preserving power. We are safe from the destroying angel under the sprinkled blood. Remember, it is God seeing the blood, which is the true reason for our being spared. Here is comfort for us when the eye of faith is dim, for God's eye is still the same. The blood of Christ is precious also in its sanctifying influence. The same blood which justifies by taking away sin does in its after action quicken or make alive the new nature and leads it onward to subdue sin and to follow out the commands of God. There is no motive for holiness so great as that which streams from the veins of Jesus. And precious, unspeakably precious, is this blood because it has an overcoming power. It is written, they overcame through the blood of the Lamb. How could they do otherwise? He who fights with the precious blood of Jesus fights with a weapon which cannot know defeat. The blood of Jesus. Sin dies at its presence. Death ceases to be death. Heaven's gates are opened. The blood of Jesus. We shall march on conquering and to conquer so long as we can trust in his power. Now, one more note. Perhaps you have heard somebody use the phrase, I plead the blood of Jesus, maybe in prayer or in a church setting or something like that. Is that a biblical practice? Well, strictly speaking, it's not. There seems to be no example in the Bible of anybody using that phrase, I plead the blood of Jesus, nor can I really find any example of anything even sort of remotely close to somebody using a phrase like that. As we have seen, there is indeed power in the blood of Jesus, but that power is not ours to command, and I'm not really sure what pleading the blood is meant to accomplish. Here's the thing, guys and ladies, we don't have magic phrases or incantations or mantras in the Bible or in the church. There aren't hidden or secret phrases or mantras known only to a few of the really inner circle and elite Christians that, when used, can invoke the power of God in an extra sort of way. Think about it this way. If you're praying for somebody and you use the phrase, I plead the blood of Jesus, do you expect that your use of such a phrase gives your prayer extra power or oomph? Does it make your prayer more effective? Do demons flee when we, quote, plead the blood of Jesus, but hang around and laugh at us when, if we don't use that phrase? I don't think so. 
I don't think pleading the blood of Jesus gives extra power and effect to our prayers. And when we think such things do, then it's really almost like we're being kind of superstitious. Our faith sometimes can rest in the power of our word phrases rather than God or Jesus himself. And that's a danger. It reminds me of the phrase, the blood of Christ compels you or the power of Christ compels you that one sometimes hears exorcist type priests use in horror movies. In most of those movies, it's quite clear that they expect their accoutrements of exorcism like holy water or specific phrases and signs of the cross and things like that. that These priests expect that those things will have the power to send the demons away. Look, God has power over demons. Water blessed by mortal humans? (laughs) No, that doesn't have power over demons. That's silly. Jesus rules over demons and commands them to depart, but phrases and signs and honestly even cross-shaped items do not have that power. Put your faith in Christ and God, not in ceremonies, not in phrases or objects or special mantras or whatever. What has the power to drive demons away? Well, Jesus does. And here's what the Bible says, and note that there's no magical phrases or prayers offered here. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, I don't know that I'm saying it's a sin to plead the blood of Jesus, but I am suggesting that we should probably distance ourselves from practices that we see no saint or follower of Jesus doing in Scripture and that we can find no basis whatsoever for in Scripture. So, something to think about. Well, let's continue reading in Psalm 148, verse 1. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly armies. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. He set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters in ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, stormy wind that executes his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creatures that crawl and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, young men as well as young women, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted." His majesty covers heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for his people, resulting in praise to all his faithful ones. To the Israelites, the people close to him, hallelujah. By the way, that phrase, sea monsters, lest you think the Bible is teaching that there are real legitimate krakens and things like that, I think it's really referring to things like uh, extra-long crocodiles and uh, blue whales and sperm whales and that sort of things, things that would honestly have looked monstrous in that day. I think it's a pretty fair title, Sea Monsters, for them. But you know what? That's just my guess. Psalm 149, verse 1. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel celebrate its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. 
Let the exaltation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands, inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, binding their king with chains and their dignitaries with iron shackles, carrying out the judgment decreed against them. This honor is for all his faithful people. Hallelujah. Psalm 150. Hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. Praise him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen and amen and amen and amen. And friends, if you've been with us this whole time, that marks the 300th psalm we've read together, which is really, really uh, fascinating. And as I've told you guys before, it's been such a blessing to me to get more and more into the psalms in 2020. Uh, pretty much every morning, I think every morning, as possible I missed one, but pretty much every morning, the first thing I try to lay my eyes on is, is a psalm or two, and it has been good for my soul I commend that practice to you. Tomorrow, we start the book of Luke, but right now, let's keep going with Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks. Everyone, last one of you with fish hooks, you will go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel, rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tenths every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice and loudly proclaim your free will offerings, for that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in your all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locust devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew through Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, Israel, that is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. Mm, Wow. Finally, First Chronicles 5 and 6, with apologies in advance. These were the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He was the firstborn, but his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, son, son of Israel, because Reuben defiled his father's bed. 
He is not listed in the genealogy according to birthright. Although Judah became strong among his brothers and a ruler came from him, the birthright was given to Joseph. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak, Palu, Hazron, and Carmi, Joel's sons, his son Shemaiah, his son Gog, his son Shemai, his son Micah, his son Reah, his son Baal, and his son Bira. Bira was a leader of the Reubenites, and King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria took him into exile. His relatives by their families as they are recorded in their family records. Jael, the chief, Zechariah, and Bela, son of Azaz, son of Shema, son of Joel. They settled in Aror as far as Nebo and Baal-Meon. They also settled in the east as far as the edge of the desert that extends to the Euphrates River, because their herds had increased in the land of Gilead. During Saul's reign, they waged war against the Hagrites and were defeated by their power, and they lived in their tents throughout the region east of Gilead. The sons of Gad, living next to them in the land of Bashan as far as Selakah, Joel the chief, Shepham the second in command, Janai and Shaphat in Bashan, their relatives according to their ancestral houses, Michael, Meshulam, Sheba, Joral, Jachin, Zia, and Eber, seven. These were the sons of Abahel, son of Hur, son of Jerah, son of Gilead, son of Michael, son of Jehishtai, son of Jotdo, son of Buz, Ahi, son of Abdiel, son of Guni, was head of their ancestral family. They lived in Gilead and Bashan and its surrounding villages and throughout the pasture lands of Sharon. All of them were registered in the genealogies during the reigns of King Judah's King Jotham and Israel's king Jeroboam. The descendants of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 warriors who could serve in the army, men who carried shield and sword, drew the bow, and were trained for war. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jeter, Nafish, and Nodab. They received help against these enemies because they cried out to God in battle, and the Hagrites and all their allies were handed over to them. He was receptive to their prayer because they trusted in him. They captured the Hagrites' livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 sheep, and 2,000 donkeys, as well as 100,000 people. Many of the Hagrites were killed because it was God's battle, and they lived there in the Hagrites' place until the exile. The descendants of half the tribe of Manasseh settled in the land from Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is, Sinir, or Mount Hermon. They were numerous. These were the heads of their ancestral families, Ephur, Ishi, Elel, Azriel, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, and Jachtiel. They were valiant warriors, famous men, and heads of their ancestral houses, but they were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors. They prostituted themselves with the gods of the nations God had destroyed before them, so the God of Israel roused the spirit of King Pul, that is, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, and he took the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to Halah, Hebor, Hara, and Gozan's river, where they are until today. Chapter 6. Levi's sons. Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. Kohath's sons. Amram, Ishhar, Hebron, and Utziel. Amram's children. Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Eleazar fathered Phineas, Phineas fathered Abishua, Abishua fathered Buki, Buki fathered Uzi, Uzi fathered Zariah, Zariah fathered Meraloth, Meraloth fathered Amariah, Amariah fathered Ahitub, Ahitub fathered Zadok, 
Zadok fathered Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz fathered Azariah, Azariah fathered Johanan, Johanan fathered Azariah, who served as priest in the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. Azariah fathered Amariah, Amariah fathered Ahitub, Ahitub fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Shalom, Shalom fathered Hilkiah, Hilkiah fathered Azariah, Azariah fathered Sariah, and Sariah fathered Jehozadak. Jehozadak went into exile when the Lord sent Judah in Jerusalem into exile at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Levi's sons, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. These are the names of Gershom's sons, Libni and Shemai. Kohath's sons, Amram, Itshar, Hebron, and Utziel. Merari's sons, Machli and Mushi. These are the Levites' families according to their fathers. Of Gershom, his son Libni, his son Jahath, his son Zimah, his son Joah, his son Ido, his son Zerah, and his son Jetherel, Kohath's son, his son Amenadab, his son Korah, his son Asir, his son Elkanah, his son Ebiasaph, his son Asir, his son Tahath, his son Uriel, his son Uzziah, and his son Shal. Elkanah's sons, Amasai and Ahimoth, his son Elkanah, his son Zophai, his son Nahath, his son Eliab, his son Jeraham, and his son Elkanah. Samuel's sons, the firstborn Joel, and his secondborn son Abijah. Merari's sons, Machli, his son Libril, his son Libni, I mean, his son Shemai, his son Uzzah, his son Shimeah, his son Haggai, and his son Aziah. These are the men David put in charge of the music in the Lord's temple after the ark came to rest there. They ministered with song in front of the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, until Solomon built the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, and they performed their task according to the regulations given to them. These are the men who served with their sons. From the Kohathites, Heman the singer, son of Joel, son of Samuel, son of Elkanah, son of Jeraham, son of Eliel, son of Toa, Son of Zuth, son of Elkanah, son of Mahath, son of Amasai, son of Elkanah, son of Joel, son of Azariah, son of Zephaniah, son of Tehath, son of Esir, son of Ebiaseph, son of Korah, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, son of Israel. Heman's relative was Asaph, who stood at his right hand. Asaph, son of Barakiah, son of Shimei son of Michael, son of Baasiah, son of Malkajah, son of Ethni, son of Zerah, son of Adiah, son of Ethan, son of Zimah, son of, son of Shemai, son of Jahath, son of Gershom, son of Levi. On the left, their relatives were Merari's sons, Ethan, son of Kishi, son of Abdi, son of Meluk, son of Hash, Hashabiah, son of Amaziah, son of Hilkiah, son of Amzi, son of Bani, son of Shemer, son of Machli, son of Mushi, son of Merari, son of Levi. Their relatives, the Levites, were all assigned to the service of the tabernacle, God's temple, but Aaron and his sons did all the work of the most holy place. They presented the offerings on the altar of burnt offerings and on the altar of incense to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. These are Aaron's sons. His son Eleazar, his son Phinehas, his son Abishua, his son Buki, his son Uzi, his son Zariah, his son Marioth, his son Amariah, his son Ahitub, his son Zadok, and his son Ahamaz. These were the places assigned to Aaron's descendants from the Kohathite family for their settlements in their territory because the first lot was for them. 
They were given Hebron in the land of Judah and its surrounding pasture lands, but the fields and settlements around the city were given to Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Aaron's descendants were given Hebron, a city of refuge, Libna and its pasture lands, Jatir, Eshtimoa and its pasture lands, Hylan and its pasture lands, Debir and its pasture lands, Ashan and its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh and its pasture lands. From the t- tribe of Benjamin, they were given Geba and its pasture lands, Alamoth and its pasture lands, and Anatoth and its pasture lands. They had 13 towns in all among their families. To the rest of the Kohathites, 10 towns from half the tribe of Manasseh were assigned by lot. The Gershomites were assigned 13 towns from the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh in Bashan, according to their families. The Merarites were assigned by lot 12 towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulon, according to their families. So the Israelites gave these towns and their pasture lands to the Levites. They assigned by lot the towns named above the tribes of the descendants of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. Some of the families of the Kohathites were given towns from the tribe of Ephraim for their territory. Shechem, a city of refuge with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer and its pasture lands, Jachmim and its pasture lands, Beth Haran and its pasture lands, Aijalon and its pasture lands, and Gathrimon and its pasture lands. From half the tribe of Manasseh, Anir and its pasture lands, and Bilium and its pasture lands were given to the rest of the families of the Kohathites. The Gershomites received Golan and Bashan and its pasture lands, and Ashtaroth and its pasture lands from the families of half the tribes of Manasseh. From the tribe of Issachar, they received Kadesh and its pasture lands, Debarath and its pasture lands, Ramoth and its pasture lands, and Anim and its pasture lands. From the tribe of Asher, they received Mashal and its pasture lands, Abdon and its pasture lands, Hukok and its pasture lands, and Rehob and its pasture lands. From the tribe of Naphtali, they received Kadesh in Galilee and its pasture lands, Haman and its pasture lands, and Kiriathim and its pasture lands. The rest of the Merarites received from the tribe of Zebulon. They received Ramono and its pasture lands, Tabor and its pasture lands. From the tribe of Reuben across the Jordan at Jericho to the east of the Jordan, they received Bezer in the desert and its pasture lands, Jotza and its pasture lands, Kedemoth and its pasture lands, and Mephath and its pasture lands. From the tribe of Gad, they received Ramoth and Gilead and its pasture lands, Mahanim and its pasture lands, Heshbon and its pasture lands, and Jadzer and its pasture lands. Whew! Well, friends, that was a mouthful. I think I'm going to go rest my voice now. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he heal you and restore you and give you vigor and energy in the power of his name. Good day to you and Godspeed.